0: Let me begin by just asking you a question this morning. Get your thinking caps on. What would it be like if um, the Spirit of God were to move in this congregation in a really powerful, almost unheard of way among us? What would that be like? Would that be exciting? Would that be threatening? maybe even a little bit scary, or uncomfortable even. You know, 300 years ago, almost 300 anyway, the American colonies experienced a powerful movement of the Spirit of God. It began in a small area of New Jersey, and it began to spread rapidly, until from Massachusetts to Georgia, the whole eastern seaboard of the American colonies was absolutely ablaze. This powerful movement of the Spirit of God, really unheard of in America, was carried on the backs of the preaching of two very powerful preachers of the Word of God, one by the name of Jonathan Edwards, the other by the name of George Whitfield. Wherever they went and preached, there would be hundreds of people who would fall on their faces in repentance and cry out to God it lasted for a period of close to 40 years this movement of the spirit and, and as it be, uh, began to grow and spread over the colonies there were there were, it became accompanied by other manifestations that were of great cause Concern for people who looked on. There were all kinds of weird and bizarre behaviors that began to manifest themselves. And, And that brought about opposition. Brought about tremendous opposition. This, by the way, is known as the period of the Great Awakening in America. And Jonathan Edwards, America's premier homegrown theologian, pastor theologian, set his powerful mind to work on the Scriptures and to examine and evaluate this movement of the Spirit to try to discern what was of God and what was the counterfeits amongst these manifestations. And so he wrote a book called Religious Affections in which he laid out his evaluation of the Great Awakening. In there he identified two marks of true conversion He said, true conversion is accompanied by an unselfish love for the things of God. That was first. And secondly, by a burning desire for Christian conduct in other men. Maybe I can boil that down. An unselfish love for the things of God, a a love for God and a desire for holiness. I could perhaps boil it down. That, Jonathan Edwards said, were the marks of true conversion, the true work of the Spirit and then a lot of the other Manifestations that he was observing and others were indeed counterfeits. Now, this great awakening, of course, wasn't carried only by these two powerful preachers. There were many others, lesser known and many unknown men of God who faithfully preached and prayed, and, and the Spirit moved. There really was never another time like it in American history. Oh, there was a second great awakening, but it didn't compare. To that first one. You know, without the passion, without the preaching, without the prayer of those faithful people, I don't believe the first great awakening would have ever happened either. Open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 14. We're in the third of what's going to turn out to be four parts in the examination of, uh, of John fourteen twelve to 17. I can't help it. That's just the way it works. But we are looking here in this section of verses 12 through 17 at three life-changing truths that we as a church must understand and implement day to day we're going to know the pleasure of God on this ministry. If we want to see anything at all remotely approaching the Great Awakening, then we need to take seriously what Christ says here in the upper room to his disciples. Three of these life-changing truths. We've gone over the first two and two-thirds of them. The first truth was that we must reach for the promise of greater works there in verse 12, right? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go to the Father. And we spent a long time talking about that. And we said that the greater works that Jesus was talking about was the worldwide expansion of the gospel to every end of the earth and and that it would pull in people from every tribe, tongue, nation, nation language. These were the greater works that Christ had left for his disciples to do. So that's the first life-changing truth is that there's a promise here of greater works, but we need to stretch out and grab it, we said. We need to really reach out for this thing. And we noted last time that, like many gospel-type promises, there are certain conditions that attach to it, and there are conditions or prerequisites to achieve this promise. And that was our second life-changing truth here, is that we must realize the prerequisites for the greater works. I said last time there were three of them here in this text. The first was the prerequisite of genuine faith. It's here in verse 12. He who believes in me. There is a prerequisite of just basically regeneration, genuine saving faith in our hearts we're going to reach out and do the greater works, the things of God, then there has to first be within us a, a relationship with God through Christ. Otherwise, it's just so much human effort. So the first prerequisite was genuine faith. The second prerequisite was here in verses 13 and 14. And that was biblical prayer. Right? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we noted last time that really it was the context in which this promise is given, this prerequisite is laid out here, that tell us that the prayers in Jesus' name are for greater works. That's what He's telling us we're supposed to be praying for here. And the reason we're supposed to, uh, or that He will promise to grant these is because the Father will be glorified in the Son, the end of verse 13. That Jesus' public ministry was a ministry given to the, to the glorification of the Father. And so the prayer that he says he will answer is the prayer given in his name for the glorification of the Father. That's the context of the prayer here. We noted also that in Jesus' name meant a whole lot. That it wasn't just a way to close out your prayer, a you know, convenient way to draw it to a conclusion. That when you pray in Jesus' name, what you are doing is you, you are you are praying by, by ver, or, or in the power of the person of Christ, and by virtue of the the uh, sacrifice of Christ, of His atonement, that making you fit to pray for Him or, or or bring come to God in prayer, and that you're praying according to the will of Christ, and that you're praying for the glory of the Father. And that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And when you do that, again, look at the text. Whatever you ask, I will grant, he says. And that takes us to our third prerequisite this morning. The third prerequisite for the greater truths is here in verse 15. The third prerequisite is a loving obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's critical, beloved, to just remember the context here of this whole thing. That will keep us on track with these kinds of statements. The context is the greater works. The loving obedience is a prerequisite to achieve the greater works. What he is saying is that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when you are keeping my commandments, greater works will come to you. If you fail to keep my commandments, you can forget about the greater works. There are many who claim to love Christ. Many who claim to love Christ, but... When it comes to keeping his commandments, they fall painfully short. Look again at verse 15. The statement is very clear. There is an unbrinkable link here. If you love me, you will keep. Do you see that? If you love me, you will keep. How do I know whether you love me? I, I know by whether you keep. That's what he's saying. Whether you keep. How do I know? How does David know whether somebody loves Jesus? Do they keep? Do they keep? It is the tangible fruit of obedience that proves one's love for Christ. It's as simple as that. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, right? But we are saved unto works, we are saved to produce works. Good works that evidence are love for Christ. Now, it's really not very hard to understand what this verse is saying, but I want to explore it with you just a little bit deeper through a series of some questions. So I want to interrogate the verse with you this morning and ask some questions of it and see if we can draw out its meaning a little deeper by doing that, okay? So, first question that I want to ask it is, what does it mean to keep Christ's commandments? If you love me, you will keep. So what does it mean to keep? What does it mean to keep? Well, there are two examples in the, in the scriptures that I want to look at with you or where the Bible says somebody kept God's commandments. So let's kind of look at those together. The first one is over in First Kings. So turn back there with me to First Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 8 is really the place where I want to concentrate. But in verse 7, we're introduced here or we're brought into this confrontation with the king Jeroboam in an evaluation of his reign. The prophet says, Thus says the God of Israel, Because I exalted you, verse 7, from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. Now stop right there. That is an amazing statement about David, isn't it? David, look again kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart and he did only what was right in my sight. Now, if you know anything at all about the life of David, you must be going, but, 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 right? I mean, but what about Bathsheba? What about the whole deal with Bathsheba? How does that play into this? Or what about the sin of numbering the people? Do you remember that one at the end of his reign? How does that play in? How can it be that David kept my commandments, followed me with all his heart, to do only that which was right in my sight? But, 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 but. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because the answer to that question is um, given to us here, I believe, in the Scriptures. Turn back to the left here a little bit. Second Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, this is where David has been confronted by Nathan the prophet. After the sin with Bathsheba, and David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Just Stop right there. I have sinned against the Lord. When confronted with his sin, David said, what? I have sinned. He repented. We know he repented because he penned a psalm, Psalm 51, in which he lays out for all the world to see for all time his repentance. David repented. What about the numbering of the people? Well, go with me to Second uh, Samuel 24, which is the account of the numbering of the people. Look at verse 10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And then if you were to continue out the chapter, you would see that he offers a sacrifice to God. First, he he throws himself on the mercy of God for the judgment. And then he later offers a sacrifice to God to end the the judgment of the plague uh, that comes upon the people. So in what sense has David kept the commandments of God and followed after God with all his own heart? By the way, this should be incredibly encouraging to you and me. The way David has kept the commandments of the Lord and followed after the Lord with all his own heart is that when David sinned, and he was able to sin in a big way, David repented. And David's repentance was every bit as deep as his sin. Somebody agrees with me. David was a sinner but David was a repenter. Let me show you another one. Go with me to the New Testament. So go all the way to John's back to John's gospel. Verse or chapter 17. John 17, this is a Jesus high priestly prayer. This is the night of his crucifixion. It occurs just a little bit later in the evening from the time of John 14. And as Jesus is praying here in verse 6, he says an amazing thing. He's praying, he says, I manifest your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have, look at it closely, they have kept your word. Now that's an incredible statement. Wait a minute, I thought this was the disciples. These are the guys who just a little bit earlier were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. These are the ones who would not wash one another's feet. These are the ones whose faith is doubting and fragile and they're they're tossed to and fro and back and forth and their lives are filled with spiritual dullness and and on and on and on, right? So how is it that they have kept his word? The answer, (coughs) excuse me. Is not in the perfection of their life, but in the direction of their life. They continue to follow after Christ in spite of it all. In spite of the fact that they doubted, in spite of the fact that they stumbled, in spite of the fact that their lives were still characterized by gross manifestations of sin, they continued to follow after Christ. So go back to John 14. Excuse me. And let's bring this definition to bear here on John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, the general direction of your life will be towards me. And when you fall, you will repent and you will turn back to me. And you will embrace me again and we will continue the journey from where we left off. Now, I don't know about you, but that's got to be about the most encouraging message that I can think of. Because I fall all the time. If the standard were absolute perfection, if you love me, you will keep perfectly, never slip, never fail, never miss a single beat of all of my commandments, I would be sunk. And so would you. And so would you. Beloved, this is the greatness of grace. <laughs> this, is, this makes it so wonderful. It is grace upon grace upon grace that just pours out on us. You are going to stumble and fall. You are going to slip into sin. Some of you into very serious sin. But if you will repent as David repented, if you will run back and embrace Christ, just throw your arms around him and grab him and tell him that you love him and hang on and and start walking again, then you will have that second chance third chance, fourth chance, and on and on and on. God is a God of grace. If you were running in a relay race and you were to trip and fall, you wouldn't just sit there on the track. You wouldn't get up and walk off the playing field and say, well, it's over, I lost. If you were to trip and fall, what would you do? You would get back up. Right, You would get back up and you would turn and you would run again. See, it's not the question. It's not like the relay race where there's only one winner here. Everyone who finishes wins. You've got to finish the race. That's what Paul says. I finished the race. Kept the course. Kept the faith. If you love me, you'll keep on running. How's that? If you love me, you will keep on running. Second question. What are Jesus or Christ's commandments here? Verse 15, John 14. What are the commandments he's talking about? It's really fascinating in this section. Notice in verse 15, it's commandments, plural. Again, down to verse 21. He who has my commandments, plural. Look over to verse 23. Jesus says, Anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Do you see that? Word, verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, plural. Look at uh, verse 10, chapter 15. If you keep my commandments, plural. Look at John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, singular. John 13, verse 12. 34, a new commandment, singular, I give you. What in the world is going on here? I mean, this is all in the close context. This is all the same sermon that he's giving them there in the upper room. And he's sometimes he's talking about commandments. Sometimes he's talking about commandment. Sometimes he's talking about words or word. What is it that he's talking about here? I, I think the answer is... That when he says commandments, he's speaking about his revelation of himself in a very in the, in the broadest form. Who I am, my words, the revelation of who I am. That is what you must keep. That is that you, you must follow after that. There is salvation in no one else. But there's also something else going on in this discourse, and I hinted at it for you there over in John 13, 34, 35, and in John 15, 12. There is, an, there is an ethical requirement as part of all of this. And that's what I want to focus on with you this morning. Look again, John 13, 34, 35. The new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I believe that Jesus is making love for the brethren the prerequisite of greater works. If you want to see greater works in this ministry, one of the prerequisites besides genuine believing faith And biblical prayer and lots of that is a loving obedience to his word, and that is a love expressed to one another in the body of Christ. I think one of the greatest advertisements for the truth of Christianity is a changed life. A person who goes from being self-biased, who goes from being most interested in what's in it for them, to somebody who goes to being most interested in what's in it for somebody else. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give His life a ransom for many. (coughs) It is the adoption of that kind of an attitude. Look again, John 13, verse 34 even as I have loved you, that you love one another. We are talking here about a sacrificial love for the brethren. When people name the name of Christ and couldn't care less about their fellow believers, that's no kind of advertisement for Christianity. There's plenty of that stuff going on out in the world. You know, I'll take care of my own, but you're on your own. Who in the world would want a part of that? It is the exact contradiction of what should occur in the heart of someone who has named Christ. And conversely, when there is, a, there is an incredible love, an outworking of love in the congregation one for another, the gospel is beautified and made appealing to the world. <coughs> Excuse me. The ability of the church to do greater works is predicated on a loving obedience within the fellowship one for another. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So go over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is the love chapter. Isn't that Right? This is the chapter that everybody wants to read at a wedding ceremony. Okay, but if I'm marrying you, I won't read it. Okay, I won't agree to do that. Because chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians occurs between chapter 12 and what? 14, that's right. And chapter 12 and 14 is all about what? Spiritual gifts within the church at Corinth. What was the problem of the church at Corinth? Corinth. The problem with the church at Corinth was that it was an incredibly divisive congregation. There was little or no love one for another. They were an amazingly gifted group. But they snapped and bit each other. They chewed and clawed at one another. They were tearing the whole thing apart. And so in the midst of this great discussion of the purpose of spiritual gifts... Paul inserts chapter 13, and he talks all about love. See, what they had failed to understand in, the, in their spiritual gifts, that gifts are given by the Spirit of God for the edification of the body of Christ, not for personal edification. The giftedness that the Spirit gives us is so that we might minister in love one to another. And what kind of love should it be? Well, how about this? Patient, kind, Not jealous. Not bragging, not arrogant, not unbecomingly, not seeking its own, not provoked, not taking into account wrongs, not rejoicing in unrighteousness, but rejoicing in the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. That's the kind of love that in which the giftedness of the body of Christ needs to manifest itself. To fail to do that is to fail to understand the purpose of spiritual gifts, to misuse them, and to tear the body of Christ. And you can forget about greater works. The church at Corinth was not a particularly evangelistic church. You Go ahead and read the New Testament. It doesn't refer to to the word going out powerfully from Corinth. It says the word went out powerfully from Thessalonica, where they loved one another. This church at Corinth was so divisive when it came to the Lord's table. They wouldn't even, they used this, the symbol of unity, to, as a way to break down the fellowship. That's how messed up that place was. So you can forget about greater works coming out of Corinth until they get it squared away in terms of love one for another. And beloved, you can forget about greater works at Foothill unless we also get it right in terms of love one for another. That takes me to my third question. My third question is, okay, how do we love one another? How do we love one another? And a love that is sacrificial, because that's what Jesus said, love one another even as I have loved you, right? Right? John 13, as soon as he says that, or a little bit earlier, rather, in that same chapter, he gave them a practical demonstration of his love for them when they're all sitting around and not one of them will stoop low enough to wash the other's feet. And Jesus, whose feet they should have washed, he puts on the servant's towel and he draws the basin of water and he washes their feet. You remember that? That's the kind of love we're talking about. So, how do we sacrificially love the brethren? That's my question for you let me suggest to you in this time that's left to us here four practical ways we can do that the first way we can do that is we can restore those that have fallen into sin that is the first practical way to love one another is to restore those that have fallen into sin go to galatians chapter 6 <coughs> The Apostle Paul says in verse 1, Brethren, if any man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now the word restore has the idea of, of uh, setting a broken bone or, or mending a torn fishing net. It's the idea of repairing it, putting it back together. If anyone is caught in sin, we are to come along, Right? You who are spiritual, we are to come along and we are to to build them up. We are to mend them. We are to put it back together. Help them in that process of putting it back together. That is what Matthew 18 church discipline is really all about. It is a restorative discipline. It is to bring to bear the pressure of the truth on a person to bring them to the point of repentance. And it is only after they have steadfastly refused repentance that at some time the church has no uh, option left but to conclude that they are an unbeliever and that they need to be put out of the fellowship for the sake of the purity of the body. But the early stages are stages of restoration. Even that, the putting out, can be restorative. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, where they put a man out and he later repented and they brought him back. So the first way that we practically, sacrificially love one another is to seek to restore those who have fallen into sin. It is messy working with people who have fallen into sin. One of our elders, who now serves in the Philippines, used to tell us at elder meetings, people are messy. And boy, was he right. Because I'm messy, and so are you. And it's easy to turn away and say, I don't have time for this. The hard thing, the loving thing, the sacrificial thing is to to get involved and give of yourself whatever is necessary to help that person put it back together. Second. The second way to love sacrificially the brethren is to cultivate a forgiving heart. It's to cultivate a forgiving heart. Luke 17, don't turn there, verses 3 and 4, just listen. Jesus says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. It is to have a forgiving spirit with one another. To forgive. How often? As many times as it takes. In that same section, uh, we know that the disciples understood what he said, although they have trouble grasping it because they respond and say, Lord, increase our faith. And it does take faith. Or we're to forgive, we're to cultivate that kind of a forgiving heart. Third, third way to love the brethren sacrificially is to refuse to take up an offense or to speak ill of one another. Refuse to take up an offense and refuse to speak ill of one another. Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. We don't need to straighten out every single piccadillo that someone has in their life. Okay, We all have issues, as the moderns would say. Okay, We need to learn to live with each other. We don't need to straighten every single bent nail that we come across. All right? Proverbs, verse, chapter 16, verses 27-28, says, A worthless man digs up evil, while his words are like a scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Okay, That means that with your mouth, you can destroy the fellowship. That's why gossip is such a horrendous sin. also says, Proverbs 18-19, that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Once you speak ill of someone and you offend them, it is extremely difficult to reconcile that and bring it back together. James says it this way, James 1, 19 to 22, but let everyone be quick to hear, right? Slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, in humility receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Okay, God gave you two ears and one mouth. So at the very least, you ought to listen twice as much as you speak. Fourth way to love sacrificially. Is that we need to fulfill our responsibilities to the needy among us. We must fulfill our responsibilities to the needy among us. 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. um, I've been reading through the book of Acts, there's been a number of things that have been stepping out to me. Last week we were looking at prayer. This week I went through the book of Acts and I was looking at the benevolence ministries of the church. It's astounding. You know, in Acts... Chapter 2, I mean, the church has just been formed here. And here in Acts 2, one of the first things they do is they begin selling their possessions and giving to one another so that nobody has need in the whole congregation. And the amazing thing in verse 47 of Acts chapter 2, it says, "Praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You go to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. This is where they prayed for boldness. They got the Spirit. Verse 32, the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed anything blind to in was his own, but all things were common property to them. There was not a needy person among them. People sold whatever was necessary. They brought the proceeds there. They laid them at the feet of the apostles, and they distributed to the people as they had need. And the church grew. You get to Acts chapter 6. And the widows are being overlooked in the daily serving of food, right? Now, we're quick to rush beyond that, but there's a statement going on here. The poor of the church were being taken care of. That's the important thing to note. And once the apostles, by the the creation of this deacon-like ministry resolve that problem, it says in verse 7 of Acts 6, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith, and we could go on and on. The physical manifestation of the outworking of this kind of a love, where people cared for one another, was the advance of the gospel. So, Back to John 14, you probably hadn't left it yet. If you love me, you will pursue after me. You will keep my word, and one word that you will keep in particular is that you will love sacrificially. And that sacrificial love will play itself out in a number of different ways. These are the prerequisites for greater works. If you are doing these things, then greater works will follow. If you are not doing these things, then you really have no right to assume any greater works to follow. A little over two years ago, we made a change in the way the deacon ministry at Foothill operates. Deacons at Foothill used to be property managers, they used to be responsible for oversight of the property primarily. A couple of years ago, after pursuing a study in the deacon ministry, the deacon board came to the conclusion that the deacon ministry was really a ministry of benevolence, not a property ministry. And so the deacon board has been in the process of moving from property to benevolence. I think, beloved, that it would be absolutely incredible if we were to be able to care for the needy among us in such a way that no one would ever worry about losing his job. That that fear that a man might lose his job and then thus his ability to care for his family would be completely removed from him because he would know that the, that the people of God would rally around him and would care and provide the needs necessary until he were able to find his employment again. What kind of an advertisement for the gospel would that be? Hmm? People feel threatened out there when there's a real, practical, working love going on, this is the place where you want to be. I want to be with people who love each other. I'm with hypocrites all day long. I mean, I'm not personally, guys. Let clarify that fact. He who makes his living by speaking is bound to put his foot in his mouth. But so anyway, I was speaking for all of you. I think it's so exciting, beloved. The chance for greater works are right there. If we'll just reach out for him. and if we'll meet the prerequisites that Christ has laid out to achieve them, let's pray. Father God, for us to uh, to live like this, for us to pray like this, requires you to increase our faith. And so, Lord God, we call out to you and ask you to increase our faith. We pray, believing, Lord Jesus, that you can, that you will, and that you want to so change us, to so conform us to your image, to make us so much like you, that the gospel message that we speak with our lips would be backed up with a life that would be compelling and that you would be pleased to use to draw people into yourself. Our Father, we know it's not us that we cannot regenerate the sin-hardened heart, that we cannot bring to life the spiritually dead. We're not so presumptuous and foolish as to believe that. But, Lord God, you do ordain both the means and the end. And the means that you've laid out for us are very clear. Give us faith to pursue. We ask that Christ would be glorified. Amen.